0: making history his story, Derek Izzy. Welcome back for another episode, the month of July. We have got a brand new episode for you. And to start things off, we're going to talk about one of the newer sponsors of the show, This sponsor is making a big dent in the world of sports betting. Go to DerekIzzy.com. Click on the link for betonline.ag. You got to use the link that's on DerekIzzy.com in order to get the special offer, but they will match 50% of your initial deposit. So you go online. You set up your account in a matter of minutes. Deposit a few hundred dollars. They will match 50% of it. And then before you know it, you're on your way to making money. Right now, you've got baseball going on. Lots of baseball games. Lots of different odds. There's mixed martial arts. You can bet on Bellator. You can bet on the UFC fights. You've got access to soccer. You've got sports all over the world. There's even eSports. You want to bet on guys playing video games? They've got the odds. Click on the link on DerekIzzy.com. There's a banner right on that main page you can click on. Get your 50% initial deposit match. And now, the topic of today's podcast. I am afraid. I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain. Back in 1923, a man named John Roche was in advertising, trying to think of ideas outside the box. His current job was to come up with an advertising plan for a subdivision called Hollywood Land. In conjunction with Harry Chandler, who at the time was a publisher of the Los Angeles Times, the men worked to come up with some advertising ideas. Now, back in these days, the area didn't have a lot of paved roads. The Hollywood Hills, beautiful landscaping, and lots of land that really hadn't been developed. One thing John Roche noticed was that after taking many, many photographs and exploring the entire area, John Roche had an idea, a very noble idea, to get the Hollywood land development off the ground and to show the world what was going on, John's idea was to build a sign. The sign would go on the mountainside and say Hollywood Land. Based on the dimensions that he was looking at, the sign would have to be 50 feet tall with each letter being about 30 feet wide. That way it would be visible from all over. This was an enormous project to put together. When the crew finally came to work on it, At times, there were up to 100 laborers working on this project. It took 60 days to complete the sign. Now, back then, projects were done a little bit differently. There was a lot less red tape. You didn't have to deal with the regulations. And a lot of the work crews were larger. You know, if something were undertaken like that today, you wouldn't have 100 laborers working in conjunction with each other to get it done. It'd be a much smaller work crew. The big sign was created with 4,000 20-watt bulbs, and really, it was an advertising gimmick to get people to notice the Hollywood Land subdivision. They had no idea that this would become a landmark and part of history. The realtors that set this up put in a maintenance fund that would help fund the upkeep of the sign. Well, in 1939, that fund ran out. In 1945, the company that owned the sign decided to donate it to the Recreation and Parks Commission. Four years later, in 1949, a windstorm went through the Hollywoodland area and the H was toppled over during the storm. The Parks and Recreation Commission had no choice but to tear down the sign. Ten years later, a decision was made to tear down the sign. But that's not exactly what happened. The word land was taken off the sign. So the sign simply read Hollywood. Almost 30 years later, in 1978, the broken down sign was replaced with all steel letters and reinforced. The sign is still available to this day. It's become a cultural icon, displaying the word Hollywood on the side of the hill. I'm sure you've seen it in movies, or maybe you've seen it in real life. The sign is now a part of history, representing Hollywood, where actors and actresses go to become famous, to achieve their dreams, to become rich, to conquer the world. February 5th, 1908. Millicent Entwistle was born in Great Britain, immigrating to the United States with her father as a young child, It is rumored that her mother had died at a young age, but I was unable to confirm that with reliable sources. It's possible that her parents divorced and her father left to come to the United States. I think that's the more likely scenario in this case. Moving to the United States with her father, they took up roots near Cincinnati, Ohio. By 1913, Millicent and her father had done some traveling. They'd spent time in New York City. They spent time in Cincinnati, Ohio. However, living in the United States with her father would be short-lived. In 1922, when Millicent was only 14 years old, her father was struck by a car and died. This tragic hit-and-run accident would leave Millicent and her two younger brothers with no parents to care for them in the country they had immigrated to. Fortunately for them, their uncle had come to New York City and was the manager for a fairly famous actor. The uncle took the children in. Charles Entwistle, Millicent's uncle, began to show her what show business was about. She really looked up to and respected her uncle, and he inspired her to take on the acting profession. Now, Millicent would go on to attend theater school and then move to Boston and performed with a theater company. She played several roles in different plays, but she struggled to have success on the screen. In 1925, she caught a break. The actor that was managed by her uncle decided to give her a non-speaking role in the play Hamlet. This small role attracted some attention for her. A year later, she was recruited by the prestigious New York Theatre Guild. Once she graduated from their program, she went on to get the role Martha in a play called The Man from Toronto. A year later, she was cast in a Broadway show called Tommy. In April of 1927, she would marry an actor. Two years later, they were divorced. She charged her ex-husband with cruelty and fraud, as he had previously been married, and had a son. All of this information was hidden from her. But Millicent continued to act. She auditioned for a film called 13 Women. This looked like her big break for the movie screen. In the movie 13 Women, she played Hazel Clay Cousins. Now, this was a very daring risque role at the time, because Hazel was a lesbian. Back then, roles like that were not embraced on the screen. The movie went through some financial difficulties, and her role as Hazel was ultimately edited out of the movie. This would mark the one and only moving picture screen appearance for Millicent. Her contract with the company called RKO that she was working with was not renewed. On September 16th, 1932, having seemingly lost her dream of being an actress, having a marriage fall apart, and still living with her uncle, Millicent's life seemed to be falling apart and in turmoil. She told her uncle she was heading out. She was going to meet some friends and stop at a store to pick up a few things. For her uncle's residence in California, was right by the Hollywood sign. The sign that was the symbol of Millicent's hopes and dreams. So she told her uncle she was going out to meet some friends. She was going to go down to a store, pick up a few things. But instead, she went out alone. She hiked up the hill to the Hollywood sign. She climbed up the 50-foot workman's ladder that was by the sign and she stood on the top of the H Millicent had been living with her uncle waiting for roles to come to her waiting for that phone to ring waiting for a letter in the mail something to give her hope hope that her dream of being an actress was not just a failed effort but it appeared that it was a failed effort and with that Millicent jumped, plunging 50 feet to her death. Two days later, on September 18th, 1932, a woman was hiking in the area. She found a woman's shoe, a woman's purse, a woman's jacket. She opened the purse and found the suicide note. That was what I started the podcast with. Upon looking further down the mountain, she saw the body, Millicent's body. But, as the public knew her, she was Peg Entwistle. And this reportedly would not be the end of her Hollywood career, for there are stories of her ghost returning. The ghost story started in the 1940s after the H was blown over in that windstorm. In 1990, Fifty years later, a young couple was hiking in the area when they saw a disoriented woman in clothing that looked like it was out of the 1930s. She was just wandering around looking like she was lost, and then she vanished. Peg Entwistle said, I would rather play roles that carry conviction. Maybe it's because they are the easiest and yet the hardest things for me to do. To play any kind of an emotional scene I must work up to a certain pitch. If I reach this in my first word, the rest of the words and lines take care of themselves. But if I fail, I have to build up the balance of the speeches and in doing this, the whole characterization falls flat. I feel that I'm cheating myself. I don't know whether other actresses get this same reaction or not, but it does worry me. She told that to a reporter back in 1929 showing she had the ability to be good-hearted and laugh at herself. At the time, no one had any idea of what the future would hold. To this day, people in the area often report smelling a scent of gardenias. This was allegedly the smell of Peg Entwhistle's perfume. A park ranger claims to have seen the ghost of Peg Antwistle on several occasions. He said it's usually late at night when it's foggy, and it's always accompanied by the strong smell of gardenias. Another resident of Beechwood Canyon said she was exercising, hiking up a trail that went by the sign. She noticed a woman on another part of the trail that looked very strange. Instead of walking, she seemed to glide, not quite floating, didn't look like a ghost. But there was something very strange about her. This Beechwood Canyon resident caught up to the woman, and the woman disappeared, leaving nothing but the scent of gardenias. The irony behind Peg Entwistle's death is that shortly after she committed suicide, she would finally get that offer that she was waiting for. A few days after her death, a letter arrived at her house, Offering her a part. That role was the role of a woman who commits suicide. This tragic irony, the life of Peg Whistle, has been brought to you by BetOnline.ag. Go to DerekIzzy.com, click on the BetOnline.ag link, get your 50% bonus. They're going to match whatever you deposit. They're going to match 50% of it on your initial deposit. You got to do it. Click on that link on DerekIssey.com. Get your money, make your bets, and tune in next month because now you know the rest of the story. Good day.